Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic. Creedal Catholic is a Catholic theology and apologetics podcast that is faithful to the magisterium and dedicated to the mission of the new evangelization. We're a part of the Vernacular Podcast Network, and if you'd like to support us or find out more about the other shows on our network, head to patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Patreon.com slash vpn or vernacularpodcast.com. Enjoy the show. All right, thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Creedal Catholic. Today, I am joined by a first-time guest on the podcast, Mr. Casey Chalk. Casey is a regular contributor to the American Conservative, Crisis Magazine, and the new Oxford, Oxford Review, and his writing has been featured in a number of other publications. He has a bachelor's in history and a master's in teaching from the University of Virginia, Go Cavaliers, and recently completed a master's in theology from Christendom College. He also is a former Reformed seminarian, uh, and now, obviously, a member of the One Holy Catholic Church. So, Casey, welcome home, and welcome to Credo Catholic. Thank you very much, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, I say welcome home. I think you've been in the church longer than I have, but I also think there are some similarities between our, our journeys to the church from Protestantism. And maybe before we get into the meat of our conversation today, we can discuss that a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your journey. I know you uh, have a very interesting journey, and there was a lot of thought that went into your uh, decision to become Catholic. So let's talk Let's talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, happy to happy to do that. So um, the, the longer story can be found um, at the journey home. On their YouTube page, you can find it there with Marcus Grodi. That was about an hour-long interview, so I'll give you the um, the, the the wave tops instead. Uh, so, I was actually raised in a uh, Catholic family. Both my mom and dad um, were raised in Catholic families themselves, from uh, Irish and Polish um, immigrant families originally. Um, but uh, even when I was born, my parents were already intrigued by evangelicalism. And so they basically went along with my early Catholic formation, more out of a sense of obligation to my extended family, to their parents. So I did get some of the uh, early sacraments in the church. I, I was baptized in the Catholic Church, um, received uh, First Communion and, uh, and confession. Um, but uh, very shortly after uh, First Communion, my parents told me that they were going to stop attending uh, Catholic Church in Northern Virginia, where I grew up, and uh, for a couple years we didn't go to any church, but um, my parents ultimately landed in a Methodist church um, for a couple of years, and then found their way into a non-denominational evangelical uh, church, or series of churches. So all of my high school experience was non-denominational evangelical, and uh, very important for me, I, I think in a lot of ways that's where I, I would say that's where I developed a strong uh, personal relationship with Jesus Christ, as uh, as a lot of Protestants evangelicals like to say. Um, but when I went when I went to college, I found that a lot of the things that I've been taught as an evangelical, well, as the particular brand of evangelicalism that I was uh, raised in, I found um, intellectually there were a lot of holes and problems, and I was looking for something that ha was a bit more theologically robust, that had more of a history and tradition to it. And uh, for a while, I found that in the Reformed tradition, and that's where, as you mentioned, I ultimately uh, entered into uh, a Reformed Presbyterian seminary after uh, I finished a graduate degree in teaching from the University of Virginia. So all through college, I was studying and then became uh, very deeply um, engaged in the Reformed tradition. 
And I, yeah, I, I started as a part-time seminarian that lasted for several years. Um, but then one of my best friends, who also was a reformed seminarian, he got his degree at Covenant, which is the flagship seminary for the Presbyterian Church in America in St. Louis. He started to have doubts about the reformed faith and ultimately converted to Catholicism, I want to say in 2009, and then moved back to Virginia, where I was. And uh, after a, lo- a series of conversations, both with him and my seminary professors and a lot of the leadership at my Presbyterian church, I myself decided to return to the Catholic Church in my youth. Um, so received confession for the first time in, oh gosh, almost 20 years, um, and then entered into RCIA and, uh, and received um, confirmation when I was, I think I was uh, 26 years old. Well, that's a beautiful story, and I wish we had more time to talk just about the story itself and all of your reasons for returning to the faith as a as a revert. But one of the things I do want to tease out just a little bit, you know, the the, the sort of nexus of Reformed and Catholic theology is a big interest of mine, um, and ecumenism, by which I mean being clear on where the differences lie. And there are some very significant differences between Reformed Protestant theology and Catholic theology, obviously. But I've also noticed, and I have some family members on on both sides, mine and Sally's side, who are Reformed, and, and they're very serious and academically oriented Christians. And I've noticed that Reformed theology holds special attraction for people who are intellectual. They're, they, maybe they start out evangelical, non-denominational, but they have um, a desire to just go deeper into the faith. And Reformed theology offers them that um, sometimes uh, to the detriment of of them sort of being attracted to Catholic theology because Reformed theology offers them answers that Catholicism might answer as well, but they don't feel the need anymore once they have the answers that they find in Reformed theology. Does that make sense? And if so, do you think that's sort of an accurate representation of what you found? Yeah, yes, I think that's entirely accurate. I think in some respects, my frustrations with sort of a low church, non-denominational evangelicalism, I was happy that I was able to find answers, I would say incomplete, inchoate answers to those uh, concerns and questions within the Reformed tradition. But yeah, ultimately I found them insufficient themselves. That makes sense. Well, maybe we can table that for another day because I would love to dig deeper on some of those insufficient ideas in Reformed theology because, as I mentioned, I think they're initially attractive, initially satisfying perhaps, but ultimately don't answer uh, the deepest questions in the way that Catholic theology does. So we'll, we'll table that for another day. I really want to get into it. But we have other things to talk about today. Maybe um, just to transition into what we are talking about, uh, let's, let's talk about your decision to become Catholic. Were there any dogmas to you that were particularly attractive coming from a reform background or perhaps particularly difficult? Uh, some really significant differences, obviously in soteriology, how we were saved between Catholicism and reform theology. So maybe one of those, maybe something else, purgatory, uh, veneration of the saints. There are lots of things that are foreign to a Protestant mind. So anything that was attractive or difficult for you coming into the Catholic church? Uh, sure. So in, in terms of your first question, um, dogmas that were particularly attractive, I'd say most fundamentally would be the magisterium itself. Um, this is a, a doctrinal religious authority that has a historical origin that can be tracked and studied, right, since the very beginning of, uh, of the church. And as a former high school history teacher, uh, the significant historical evidence for the church and how it possessed an apostolically derived magisterial authority was critical for me. So uh, otherwise, when it comes to religious dogma, every Christian is left to his or her own devices in trying to determine what counts as infallible religious truth. And uh, I 
I discerned uh, or concluded that that is a recipe for anarchy. Um, so in, in terms of your second question, what was the most difficult for me? Yeah, definitely all the things you named were things that I had to study and work through. They were things that I found uh, concerning uh, coming from the Reformed tradition, but probably more than anything else, that was the Marian dogmas. And that's because uh, one of the five core tenets of the Reformation is sola Christus, meaning only Christ. Um, and that, to tease that out a little bit, means only Christ is only Christ who saves us. The only Christ is the mediator between God and man. So from the outside, as a Reformed uh, Protestant, uh, Catholic teachings regarding Mary can seem to be in tension with Christ's preeminent authority. And that's not just because Marian dogmas like the Immaculate Conception or Mary's perpetual virginity or the assumptions seem to place Mary on equal or near equal footing with Jesus. It's also because it can appear that many Catholics talk more about Mary than they do about Christ. Uh, but I, as I studied the Church's Marian dogmas and conversed with a lot of Catholics about the role of Mary in their lives, I came to realize that the essential concern of Solo Christus, which is namely that Christ's preeminent sociological authority must not be compromised, that's not undermined by the Marian dogmas. And I'd actually argue that, quite surprisingly to a former Protestant seminarian, they're clarified. Yeah, I would agree with that. Clarified and, and perhaps I would even say magnified. And the Church's teaching has been very clear on this, that every time we venerate Mary, what we're really doing is venerating her for her role in bringing us Christ. Um, and so we only, we only venerate her because of the richness of Christ in the first place. Um, and so without Christ, she is nothing just, just as in the same way without Christ, we are nothing. So I, I totally agree with you, but it is, it is kind of foreign to a Protestant mind to think of it that way. But, um, there's a line in the catechism. I wish I had the reference right in front of me, but it talks about how, um, all of the graces of Mary flow from Christ. And so when we look to Mary, what we're really doing is looking at Jesus, which is why the, the phrase to Jesus through Mary, um, is so often talked about. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And maybe... This is an incom uh, incomplete analogy, but I think it might be helpful for some Protestant listeners. Is perhaps you could compare it to Protestant veneration of Holy Scripture itself, right? Protestants would never say that they worship Holy Scripture, right? Holy Scripture is God's word. It's the it's it's the means by which they understand God and worship Him, but it's not itself to be worshipped, right? But it's a, but it's a means of um, understanding and glorifying God. And I, I, there's an analogous way that, that Marian devotion operates in the Catholic paradigm. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, and it reminds me of last night, I was teaching this apologetics course at my church. And one of the common Protestant objections that we talked about was Catholics worship saints. And, uh, and I was being a little bit provocative, but I asked the room, what would you say if I told you that it is true that Catholics do worship saints? And everyone was kind of surprised. And then I pointed out, <laughs> here's the thing. We have Dulia and Hyperdulia and Latria. Yes. And both of those, or all three of those, translate to our English worship, but they mean very different things. And Dulia and Hyperdulia are worship of creatures, and that's just giving them veneration because of the place that they hold with respect to God, whereas Latria is the worship due only to God. And so when, when we hear worship, in a Protestant sense especially, we really think about Latria only. And so when we talk about veneration, which is normally what we would, what we would call Dulia or translate as Dulia, uh, which also translates as worship, then it sort of raises the hair on the back of our heads. But really, it's something totally different than the latria, the worship that's due exclusively to God. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think a lot of Protestants find that kind of um, qualification discerning, right? Because in a lot of ways, Protestantism is about simplifying things. So the idea of having this uh, 
tiered series of devotions itself seems foreign to a religious tradition that's about simplifying kind of like Occam's razor type of theology. Yeah, I think that's 100% correct. One other thing I wanted to ask you before we get to the meat of our discussion today, and I like to ask this of all converts that come on the podcast, but do you have any regrets about becoming Catholic? Any second guesses since you became Catholic? And one of the reasons I ask this, that, well, I guess I'll, I'll give you two reasons. There are a number, but one of the reasons is that some people out there might be sitting there questioning their faith, right? Engaging with other ideas, be it other ideas within Christianity or other world religions, agnosticism, atheism. And uh, I think it's good to hear committed Catholics who have questioned or sometimes do question the faith and how you work through those. The second reason I ask is that I know some Protestants who are very very Protestant in their convictions and say that they will never be Catholic. And they point to people like you and me who have come into the Catholic Church from Protestant traditions, and they look for any signal of sort of dissatisfaction from us, any uh, thinking that we we move too quickly in becoming Catholic, etc. And so I think it's good to be clear um, for those people as well whether or not we do have any second guesses or doubts after becoming Catholic. Um, regrets, yes. Um Several, though probably not in the way that um, many Protestants would hope I would answer. So I've written about this elsewhere, um, but I'm regretful of how I came into the church. I was pretty emotionally raw from a difficult romantic breakup when I left the Presbyterian church. So I wasn't in a very good place to have productive conversations with uh, my Presbyterian friends about my decision. And I, I've, like I've said, I've, 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 uh, I've made this very clear in my writing that I, I've loved and I still love the members of uh, my Presbyterian church and my Reformed semin seminary, um, and I retain a lot of those friendships from that time. Um, and I'm very, very eager and willing to acknowledge that many of those folks uh, are holier than I am to this day. Um, and I so I regret that I didn't try harder to explain myself to them and bring a lot of them with me, or at least some of them, uh, and even indeed some of the leadership of my church uh, are ex-Catholics themselves. Um, but I suppose regrets in terms of the Catholic faith and doctrine, no, not particularly. I think I, I'd say the more I study the Catholic faith and, and also reflect on the, the tenets and paradigm of Protestantism that I left, the more I've been persuaded that I made the right decision. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, you know, I think just to step back a little bit, though, um, I think it's also natural for anybody to have doubts, right? The doubt is a natural part of faith because we are, we are in constant finite creatures. And, um, you know, by definition, we're unable to cling fully to Christ, uh, because of our finitude and our sinfulness. And so, um, all of us to some degree wrestle with doubts. And for some of us, it might be doubting whether or not God will provide food on my table today, um, others of us might doubt, you know, the, the hypostatic union, for example. And so I think those, those doubts are a very natural thing. The way I answer this question for people is, you know, do I doubt? Um, yes, from time to time I do have doubts and you have to deal with those doubts through faith, through prayer, through study. But those doubts are also not something that, that is unique to my being Catholic. I think those doubts are unique to my human condition. And so wherever I would find myself in whatever faith tradition, I would certainly have doubts. I would suggest to you that those doubts are, are less and my certitude becomes more sure being Catholic because um, I am confident of where I am more so than I would be anywhere else. But I also think that those those doubts are a natural thing and a good thing to embrace so that you can more fully uh, enter into faith and union with God. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, I entirely agree. Um, yeah, I suppose I do have, I mean, there have been times I can think of when there have been doubts, but 
probably not so much of a theological nature, but more um, the pain associated with the Catholic faith, um, both because um, there are a lot of hardships with the Catholic faith um, that, that I didn't experience as much as a Protestant. I don't know the particulars on your own Protestant upbringing, but the Presbyterian denomination of which I was a part was very small, fairly insular, um, a, a very tight-knit community. And now being uh, Catholic, right, like we have a constant barrage of media reporting on all the kinds of crises that are going on in the church, um, poor leadership um, for many of those in the hierarchy. Um, so I think those, in a sense, um, can incite doubt. But it's not so much doubt in the truths of the Catholic faith, but more like, oh, my gosh, like things were so much easier when I was in this small peripheral Presbyterian denomination than being part of this massive um hierarchical juggernaut which uh is is so easily maligned in the media yeah completely i mean the the institutional nature of the visible catholic church uh cuts both ways because on the one hand uh you can you can find in it a visible source of authority and a visible sign of uh, god's god's grace and god's sponsorship sponsorship of his church but but on the other hand you bind yourself to an institution that um, is is also human, right? So it's the the double aspect of the church. So fully divine, but also fully human, made up by by men and women uh, who are fallen people and do bad things. And because of the institutional nature of the church, it is very much in the public spotlight. And because you know you uh, wear on your your sleeve your allegiance to the church, um, people are going to associate you with those things. Uh, right or wrong, and that is that is sometimes a a difficult thing to bear. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah, right. Yeah, as a Protestant, especially as a Presbyterian, I think most people they would even scratch their heads when I would tell them, like people I worked with or whatnot. I'm a Presbyterian. They would go, I don't really don't even know what that is. Um, and all I would have to kind of defend is the Bible, right, or like right. belief in God. Whereas now I'm responsible. Especially as a as a public Catholic apologist, I'm responsible for navigating all these complex issues regarding Pope Francis or various church crises, or or just things like contraception that are sure. yeah teachings totally foreign to the modern mind. Yes, yeah, yeah. D- difficult yeah. things for sure. Yes. Well, speaking of some of your uh, your work as a public apologist, I would like to uh, take the rest of our time tonight to talk about a recent article you wrote at Crisis Magazine. Um, it was responding to, and forgive my pronunciation, I'm not sure if you know the correct pronunciation, uh, I'm going to go with Ansi Kamel, um, who is the editor of the of Advantes, I think, which is the journal of the Davenant Institute. We've talked about this before on the podcast. My, my podcast co-host, Kevin, um, and I, Kevin cannot join us tonight, but we talked briefly about this piece by Mr. Kamel um, in First Things. It was Mercifully, it was in the opinion section, at least. Uh, but but this, this piece was all about why, in his words, Catholicism made him Protestant. And it was, it was quite obvious that it was responding to a, a, an increasingly common genre of conversion story in which various Catholics describe how uh, the various failings of Protestantism made them Catholic. And so Mr. Kamel was making kind of a cheeky... Uh, rebuttal to that and explaining how all of the various trappings of Catholicism made him actually more convicted of his Protestant identity. Um, and so he brought up a number of things in this argument, uh, I would argue uh, fallaciously, uh, but you responded with what I thought was a very, very well-written and succinct and clear piece. And I thought we could uh, we could talk about that a little bit. Oh, I'd love to. Yeah, thank you. Yes, great. So um, let's just open it up with this Kamel piece a little bit. Um so I'm going to sort of 
I, I, I'd like to do it this way. So obviously, uh, I don't agree with with uh, almost anything in this article. I think it's well written. I won't take that away from him. But I just think it's it's uh, it's poorly argued. I think his reasons for remaining Protestant are poorly reasoned. Um, but for purposes of our conversation, I want to kind of steal man his arguments and ask you to respond to them if that works for you. That's fine. Let's do it. All right. So the first thing is that uh, Mr. Kamel argues that there are. Uh, as he says, quote, discrepancies between Catholic apologists map of the tradition and the terrain I encountered in the tradition itself, end quote. Um, he goes on to say that if you read um, Ambrose uh, on soteriology, he sounds a lot like Luther. If you read St. John Chrysostom on repentance, he sounds a lot like the the Synod of Dort, etc. And so as he surveys the tradition, um, well, first of all, as he surveys the writing of the writings of modern Catholic apologists, he looks at them, say, "Look, the the writings of the Church Fathers are very clear and unanimous on these key issues, and so we can't possibly believe anything else." And he goes and looks at the writings of Church Fathers and says, "Actually, I don't see unanimity here. I see, you know, a a uh, quite a wide diversity, maybe a healthy diversity, maybe an unhealthy diversity, but a diversity nonetheless." And so, um, I don't see these folks unanimously ratifying the tenets of modern Catholic theology. Rather, I see them actually ratifying some of the elements of, of Protestant and more specifically Reformed theology. So what would you say to that? Yeah, okay, so <laughs> yeah, the last thing you said, uh, paraphrasing uh, Kamel, and again, yeah, if, uh, if he listens or if his friends listen, we apologize if we're mispronouncing his name. My my language training is in Persian, not Arabic. So, But um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go with Kamel. Um, so, uh, yeah, the broad claim is difficult to address, so I think we have to go with some of the specifics. So let's talk about uh, Ambrose and Chrysostom. Um, so uh, Camille argues, for example, that St. Ambrose's doctrine of justification sounded a great deal more like Luther's sola fide than like Trent. So unfortunately, uh, Mr. Camille doesn't provide any quotations or examples to substantiate what exactly he's referring to in reference to St. Ambrose. But we can probably infer, based on popular Protest, uh, Protestant apologetics, of which I'm very familiar with. Um, so, uh, and I should mention, by the way, um, as, as we're going through here, that my friend Tim Troutman uh, covers a lot of this ground in a post at the website called The Communion, for which I also write. Yeah, and actually, I'll, I'll pause you there, Casey, and just say that Call to Communion is one of my favorite websites for examining a lot of these these differences between Catholic and Reformed theology. It is a website uh, founded by people who were Reformed uh, seminarians, or in some cases, pastors, I think, and became Catholic. And this is not your run-of-the-mill, like, Catholic answers level of of, uh, of engagement with these ideas. This is this is deep uh, university-level um understanding of these ideas and engagement with them in, in what I think is really um, honest and um, authentic ways. So I highly recommend Called to Communion as a, as a resource for any of our listeners who are thinking about some of these questions as well, or just want to dig deeper. I find it very academically fascinating um, to engage with these questions. So Called to Communion is a great website, but go on, go on, Casey. Sorry for interrupting. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Well, just to, just to um, reiterate what you just said, I mean, Called to Communion is where I learned how to argue in a, in a, um, in a very robust theological manner, um, and uh, yeah, I credit the call to communion with a lot of what I lo- what I know about how to both uh, you know do the kind of uh, ecumenical dialogue that I'm engaged in in my writing, and uh, and how to think critically about things. And yeah, and actually, for anybody who's familiar with call to communion, as you listen to me work through Mr. Kamel's uh, arguments, you're probably gonna you're gonna see a lot, a lot of connections to the kinds of ways of thinking and arguing that are done uh, at that website. Okay, so uh, one quotation that's commonly attributed to Ambrose 
is the following. This is the ordinance of God, that he which believeth in Christ should be saved without works, by faith only, freely receiving remission of his sins. Okay, so, wait a minute, that kind of sounds like St. Ambrose is teaching um, sola fide. Yeah, sure sure sounds like it, yeah. Right, that he's, uh, he's, this, is, this is him being sort of a, a seed um, towards a, a, an eventual Protestant Reformation. Well, I hope that Kamal is not referring to this quotation in his article, um, or has this in mind in his article, um, even though it's often cited by Protestant apologetics, because it's actually spurious. The true author of that quotation is not Ambrose. It's Hilary the Deacon. Uh, and Hilary, and this is not to be confused with uh, St. Hilary of Poitiers, uh, he taught other views that were also denounced as heretical, such as the necessity of second baptisms for heretics re-entering the church. Okay, so hopefully Kamal isn't referring to that one, or Kamal rather. Uh, or, so perhaps instead Kamal is referring to another quotation, which is indeed from Ambrose. And here it is. If you pardon an armed man who was able to fight, do not pardon him in whom faith alone waged the battle. Okay, so the phrase faith alone one of the battle cries of the Reformation is used approvingly by Ambrose in that quotation. But we need to ask, is Ambrose an adherent of the doctrine of sola fide as the reformers understood it, or is something else going on here? Okay, so first off, we need to keep in mind, this is the only time, as, at least as far as I know, where Ambrose ever uses the phrase faith alone. Secondly, uh, just because he uses the phrase faith alone doesn't mean he means the same thing as the reformers did, right? We gotta keep in mind there's about a thousand years between him writing this, more than a thousand years, between him writing it and, uh, and the reformed, the reformation of the 16th century. Um, and indeed, the quotation I just cited is found in a text on repentance, which is aimed at rigorists who believe that mortal sins committed after baptism could not be forgiven. So in this treatise, Ambrose teaches that Catholic priests have a Christ-derived authority to forgive sins, which in and of itself is contrary to Reformed soteriology. Um, so that's problematic uh, for Mr. Kamel. And third, we have a lot of quotations of Ambrose, which demonstrate that uh, the church, him, he as a church father did not teach sola fide. So for example, in the same exact treatise, he writes, He calls each blessed, both him whose sins are remitted by the font, and him whose sin is covered by good works. For he who repents ought not only to wash away his sin by his tears, but also to cover and hide his former transgressions by amended deeds, that sin may not be imputed to him. Right? So, sounds like we're talking about uh, baptismal regeneration in there, right? That's not reformational teaching. And then also the fact that uh, good works also uh, have a soteriological component. Elsewhere, Ambrose writes, we have also noted already that the blessedness of eternal life is the reward for good works. So if any Reformed pastor or teacher uttered either of those quotations I just cited by Ambrose, oh, their congregation would run them out of the sanctuary for violating a principal tenet of their, of their faith tradition. So quickly, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, do you want me to, I can move on to Chrysostom? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it briefly, and then I've got, I've got one response for you. Okay, great. So the problem with Christendom is basically, Christendom is much the same. So isolated readings of particular quotations that taken out of context might suggest that this church father is aligned with Reformed teaching. Christendom also approvingly uses the phrase faith alone in a few places, though again, we need to ask ourselves, is this what the, Refor is this what the Reformers had in mind by faith alone? Um, almost certainly not, given that elsewhere, Christendom writes something like this. 
that you may not then, when you hear that he has chosen us, imagine that faith alone is sufficient. He proceeds to add life and conduct. To this end, says he, has he chosen us, and on this condition, that we should be holy and without blemish. And elsewhere, Chrysostom writes, Yet not even from this do we assert that faith alone is sufficient to salvation. And the directions for living given in many places of the Gospels show this. Right? So, um, whatever, whatever Chrysostom may say in reference to faith alone, they need to be interpreted within the, within the broader context of um, his entire corpus of writings, which very emphatically denounce the kind of sola fide uh, conception that's found in the Reformed faith. Yeah, very helpful, and um, and I think that's good on these these specific points about Chrysostom and Ambrose rebutting uh, Mr. Carmel's claims about what what they said and how they sounded pretty reformed. Because uh, if I understand you correctly, one, um, they don't sound reformed in all of the other places that they're writing, but also two, even in this place where they quote sound reformed. Uh, when they're saying things like faith alone, their usage of that phrase is very, very different from what would come 1,200, 1,300 years later when Luther said faith alone. Yeah. Yeah, so got it. Okay, but let me try to steel man this a little bit more. Let's just say that, okay, you've you've knocked down these two instances that Mr. Kamel cited, but isn't it still true that there is not unanimity among the church fathers on every important teaching of the church? And if that is the case, if it is true that there is not unanimity— why shouldn't I just be Protestant? Yeah. Okay. So um, this is a little bit more of a complicated answer, but okay. So part there's a there's a premise built into that question, which is a little problematic, which is that we should expect unanimity from the church fathers, right? And the church's claim in regards to holy tradition is is never that all of the church fathers teach and believe the same thing on everything that they ever wrote, right? And if we, that would be pretty remarkable, um, and it would probably be suggestive that uh, our religious tradition was more of a cult, cult in the bad sense, right, of sort of like a, a brainwashing, to imagine that all of these individual men writing from uh, the very end of the first century AD all the way until, well, people debate where the last church father was, but somewhere between maybe like the uh, 7th or 9th century AD, right? So, yes, there's... It's true. There is a diversity of opinions on various subjects among the church fathers. But that's not the Catholic Church's claim regarding holy tradition and how to look at um, the holy fathers uh, as part of an infallible uh, tradition. Rather, the Catholic Church's teaching uh, is that there is a consensus among the fathers on various uh, central components of the faith, right? So something like baptismal infant baptism or baptismal regeneration or uh, the uh, true presence of Christ in the Eucharist uh, or Marian devotion. These are all doctrines that one will find broad unanimity among the church fathers. Does that mean that every single church father is going to say the same exact thing and agree in all the specifics? No, not particularly, but that's not that's not the claim of the Catholic Church regarding holy tradition, and it's not really undermined by there being a, a diversity, um, a, a certain amount of diversity amongst the fathers. Yeah, and if I can take off my steel man cap here and, and join your side of the debate for just a moment, I would just, I would add to what you said, having agreed with all of that, that, you know, the, the issue is, is not about um, even the it's not about whether or not all of these people agree, right? It might be true that if you go on some basic Catholic apologetics websites, you'll be given the impression that there is complete unanimity on 
every important church doctrine. Um, but that's just simply not the case, right? So think of these men like Tertullian and Origen, who were, uh, you know, Origen, for example, a wonderful scholar of scripture, uh, gave a lot to us in the church about how to understand uh, scripture. But he also advocated, you know, uh, apocatastasis, universal reconciliation. That is something that the church has has said, no, that is that is wrong. That is heresy to adhere to that. So the the issue is not whether or not we can identify here and there and and uh, everywhere certain fathers who dissented from the uni- the broadly unanimous view. Rather, the issue is, and I think this is sort of an attestation of the truth of the church. How have these essential truths of the faith um, survived through the ages, um, despite the the uh, the sort of opposition of some key figures here and there, and and how is it? The answer is it's because there has been broad unanimity from the church fathers on these very important issues, despite you know a few objections here and there, and and really that's just about our, our human infinitude. There's no perfect man other than Jesus Christ, and so um, none of the scholars and doctors of the church are ever 100 percent correct on everything. So even Thomas Aquinas, for example, erred on something like the Immaculate Conception. Um, which was not dogmatically defined until the 19th century. But you know, now that it is, uh, he wouldn't err on that because he wouldn't contradict the dogma. But the fact that people here and there object to a certain thing or have a different spin than the rest of the church doesn't disqualify that doctrine from being valid. Yes, yeah, that's exactly right. And I think if we, if we turn the question around and examine how much consensus there is among the church fathers regarding so many Catholic doctrines, I think we'll be consistently surprised by the by that level of consensus, right? The fact that you have someone like St. Ignatius of Antioch writing in with like the first decade of the second century, the, the ways that he talks about uh, the Eucharist and the Episcopacy uh, is in such close alignment with church fathers that write hundreds of years after him and then are ultimately confirmed by church councils. That's that's a pretty remarkable um, historical reality. Yeah, and I think it's it's really sort of setting up a straw man to say, you know, Catholics say there's complete unanimity, but aha, there's not. Therefore, I shouldn't be Catholic because Catholics don't really say that. I mean, again, you may be able to find some um, some overly basic uh, claims of various Catholic apologists uh, who would say that, but that's that's not the broad claim of the church. It never has been that there is complete unanimity. Rather, it's been the Holy Spirit divinely leads and guides the church into truths, uh, despite the efforts of some men in some places to uh, to contradict that. Right? Yeah. And as a former Protestant, I think I can I can I can say this that the the attack on the church's teaching regarding the consensus of the Holy Fathers sounds a little bit like critics of Holy Scripture when they look for places where authors in Holy Scripture, say, for example, the, the writers of the four Gospels, seem to be in tension or in disagreement with one another. Um, almost as if, you know, it's, it's someone who's just going to try and look for any kind of holes um, or a sense of disagreement between them. No, that's, that's a really good point. Yeah, I mean, you know, here it was 2,000 people, there it was 5,000 people, so therefore it didn't happen, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Good point. Well, so this ties into another issue that Mr. Kamel brought up that, I, that we don't have time to go into, but that's just that he also pointed out there's infighting among Catholics. And just very briefly, you pointed out in your article, that is not so much a feature of Catholicism uh, as it is a feature of our humanity, because anytime you have people gathered under one roof, uh, you will find infighting and disagreement. Um, really, this sort of cuts, though, against Mr. Kamel's argument in a way, because 
despite all of this crazy infighting in the Catholic Church, and you and I, I think, being in the Catholic Church now are more aware of it than ever, despite all of this infighting, the church still persists as the oldest institution in the world, and it still remains, you know, the most influential or one of the most influential um, and largest in terms of membership, um, and, and it still is doing what it has been doing for almost 2,000 years. So that, despite all the infighting, to me is a pretty powerful argument for for what's happening because uh, no other denomination has been able to survive um, a, a fraction of that time. Uh, I, I guess we could talk about orthodoxy, so I'm, I'm sort of not including them in that, that broad statement I made just now, but the fact of our unity despite our infighting and differences over almost two millennia is an amazing testament to to something solid being here that grounds us. Yeah, of course it is. I mean, I as a, as a student of history, I can't think of another uh, institution, hierarchical institution that has lasted as long as the Catholic Church. And I'm not the first person to, to make a comment or observation like this, but um, if any other organization were as consistently uh, poorly run as the Catholic Church has been over its 2,000-year history, it would have fallen away, uh, you know, collapsed uh, in the sands of time far long, you know, a long time ago. And I think that the fact that we've had, you know, times in the church where we've had bad popes, we've had a time in the church when a majority of the bishops dur- during the Arian crisis that were heretics, and yet the church stands. Uh, the church has been assaulted by all manner of uh, states and other actors who have uh, sought to destroy it um, and uh, and drive it into the dustbin of history, they've been unsuccessful. Um, that seems to suggest that uh, there is a uh, divine uh, power, a divine approbation at work in the church. Yeah, so that's two of Mr. Kamel's claims. Let's talk about the uh, the third briefly here, and, and we're a little bit short on time, so I will, I'll make my question here quick. But again, I'm going to try to steel man Mr. Kamel's argument here. So he talks about St. John Henry Newman. This is, uh, this is a, a sort of polemically powerful choice, I think, because St. John Henry Newman is the, is the hero of many converts to the faith, including myself. He was an Anglican uh, bishop and then became a Catholic bishop and eventually cardinal, recently canonized in this October. So he is now officially St. John Henry Newman as opposed to just blessed. Um, and actually, a uh, fun story, he is one of our, we, we selected him as one of our family patron saints for uh, this liturgical year. So we're, we're invoking the intercession of St. John Henry Newman St. St. John Henry Newman and St. Rose of Lima for our family this year. But I digress. We love St. John Henry Newman. Um, And Mr. Kamel's choice of him uh, to sort of uh, attack on this point, I think, is is salient and makes his attack particularly powerful, rhetorically at least. Um, But basically his line of argument goes like this. Um, So Newman writes a lot about the the development of doctrine, uh, the use of private judgment, um, the grammar of ascent is one of his uh, most famous essays. And Kamel says, look, it wasn't until the 19th century that anyone came up with this development of doctrine idea. Um, and so, and that's when, when Newman wrote this essay about what the development of doctrine entails and how doctrine develops authentically and how it doesn't contradict itself. Um, and Kamel says, look, the fact that it took this long up into the 19th century for anyone to come up with this kind of cuts against the idea of any authentic authentic development of doctrine. That's that's point one. And point two is he says, look, there's this argument that Newman makes about private judgment. And Kamel says, look, this judgment, this private judgment idea is built on sand because to decide whether or not Newman is even correct on using private judgment, you have to use your private judgment to say, to, to say whether or not he's correct. And so um, even becoming Catholic, I have to use my private judgment to decide if the Catholic Church is correct. And so um, in that sense, uh, 
it's built on sand. But also, once I become Catholic then, do I just surrender my private judgment for the rest of time on these matters of faith? Um, and Mr. Kamel says he's not willing to do that. So what would you say to those two claims about St. John Henry Newman? Sure. Okay, so first off, if Kamal really means that the doctrine of development is nowhere visible in Catholic teaching until the 19th century, he's just flatly wrong. So St. Vincent of Lorraine taught a version of doctrine of development in the 5th century, and Newman is actually building upon Vincent's work. Um, so yes, uh, Newman's writing on doctrinal development is far more robust, far more uh, theologically interesting and sophisticated than anything that's appeared, but it's it's not unprecedented, um, and there's a long history of uh, Catholic theologians talking about the development of doctrine. Okay. All right, um, so that, that, that takes care of number one, then. How about number two? Okay, so um, private judgment. So uh, I'm afraid uh, Kamal's reading of Newman on private judgment is also uh, pretty superficial. So Newman is cate categorically not saying that an individual's reason cannot be used to evaluate any religious argument. That would be ridiculous. That's, that's ridiculous. Of course, one needs to reason in order to evaluate arguments regarding the existence of God or which religious tradition has the best historical claim to authority. Otherwise, there's no way for an individual to reason that the Catholic Church has the authority to bind his or her conscience in the first place. And indeed, in the Catholic tradition, we possess what are called motives of credibility that can appeal precisely to man's reasoning faculties prior to an act of faith. Rather, what Newman is saying is that recourse to an individual's personal reasoning is insufficient in theological matters regarding the authoritative interpretation of Scripture and or that require divine faith. So, for example, even if a person reads Scripture and intuits a conception of the Holy Trinity, this interpretation couldn't be normative, right, for the church because that person lacks interpretive authority. Only the institutional church, founded by Christ, possesses that kind of authority. So Newman is indicting the kind of private judgment in the Protestant paradigm that permits all manner of differing opinions on topics like how is man saved or how many sacraments are there or what will happen in the end times. Well, and I think that just to go back to our previous idea about whether or not there's unanimity among the church fathers on X topic and therefore Protestant says, aha, you're wrong, um, to circle back and sort of see how Newman completes this picture for us, when Newman says, as you as you pointed out in this example, you know, an individual in, intuits some conception of the Trinity, but that conception would not be normative because that individual is not the church, um, and the church is the one, the church as led by Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the church has the authority to make uh, binding proclamations on doctrinal issues. It's not, though, it's not because the church is some sort of, like, um, uber aggregation of a bunch of people with private judgment, right? right. It's, it's yeah. because it's because the church has this divine charism uh, that is that belongs to the magisterium and the magisterium only of defining doctrine for the faithful. And that's the difference. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think a good... Historical example of that might be um, in the 1960s, Humanae Vitae. Um, when that teaching first appeared, a I don't I don't I don't know if it was necessarily a majority, but a massive number of um, Catholic theologians were upset with that teaching. Right there, they had exercised their own private judgment and determined that contraception was morally permissible. Right, um, but the Church overruled them. Um, and declared, uh, based on you know its its authority to act on, is a teach on faith and morals that uh, contraception in all circumstances is immoral. 
Right. And again, not because it's, it's some aggregate of private judgment, because as you just mentioned, if it were, then that teaching would have never come down. But that was the church uh, acting out its capacity, uh, its divine charism of, of defining, uh, def- defining doctrine for the faithful. Yeah, exactly. Okay, good. So now we've covered uh, three of Mr. Kamel's objections, and, and they, they are all what I would call sort of negative objections, right? It's don't be Catholic because of this. The final thing that he ends with, and I really want to hear your your opinion on this as a as a prior Reformed seminarian, the final thing he comes up with is a reason to be Protestant, and that specifically is justification by faith alone. So I think, if I recall from the article, he basically says that he discovered uh, justification by faith alone sitting in his dorm room, and it was a real it was a real aha moment for him. Um, and I I don't want to take away uh, I don't want to take away from his personal experience. I do I do think it's potentially dangerous to sort of base um, base these decisions on not just private judgment, but also sort of private experience uh, or private revelation. But putting that aside for just a moment, um, he, he cites the what he sort of describes as the, as the beauty of this, uh, this idea. Let me, let me quote from him here. First of all, he cites Galatians 3.27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, um, idea of imputed righteousness there. And uh, he quotes Luther's Thesis 37 of the 95 Theses, in which Luther says, quote, any true Christian, whether living or dead, participates in all the blessings of Christ and the church, and this is granted him by God, even without indulgence letters. Um, so Mr. Carmel says to him, this uh, was a light bulb moment, and he realized that he had put on Christ and that all the blessings of Christ were his. Um, and he saw that as uh, in contradiction to Catholic doctrine. So what do you make of that? Yeah, okay, so this gets to one of the ecumenical topics that uh, most interests me. So we need to consider Kamel's underlying presuppositions in uh, this story uh, regarding his interpretation of Scripture. So his paradigmatic approach is really visible uh, in what he writes here, especially in his assertion that Protestantism is, as he says, more faithful to Scripture. So such thinking, as I've argued in a lot of articles on different websites, presumes the Protestant doctrine of perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture. So this doctrine uh, is, is it's diversely understood within Protestantism, but typically it teaches something like individual Christians using ordinary means like a good translation of Scripture, personal prayer, listening to biblical preaching, will be able to divine the Bible's true meaning. Okay, but here's the problem. Presuming one's paradigm when evaluating another paradigm is to a priori stack the deck in favor of one's own position, right? So it's also question begging because it presumes something, in this case, Scripture's clarity, that Catholicism doesn't presume. So if we're going to be intellectually honest, we can't start from a position where we've decided that certain premises, which we know are not held by our interlocutors, are irrevocably true and not up for debate. And can I just pause you there real quick, Casey? And when you say that Catholicism does not um, embrace Scripture's clarity, what you mean is the doctrine of clarity of Scripture that, that an individual can can clearly interpret it. Because what you're not saying is that Catholicism doesn't say, uh, you, or you're not saying that Catholicism says Scripture is just unclear, period, but rather that the individual doesn't have the ability to uh, interpret it infallibly or definitively or authoritatively, right? That's ex- yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so an individual Christian or Catholic reading scripture can still, you know, read the text. It should be done in um, within the context of holy tradition and magisterial teaching. Of course, they can read it. They can profit from it. They can, they can learn and understand certain truths from it. But if they're trying to do that apart from magisterial teaching, then yes, it's almost, it's hard for me to imagine that they could not err. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. 
So anyway, yeah, it's no surprise that uh, Mr. Kamel found Catholicism to be wanting because he was evaluating it on Protestant terms from the very beginning. Um, and I, also, as I argue my article, those terms aren't exactly reliable anyway. Right? So, for example, Kamal, he waxes eloquently on the discovery of justification by faith alone. But that phrase, faith alone, appears in the Bible only once in James 2.24, where uh, James writes, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Yeah, this is one of my favorite things to point out to uh, adherents of Sola Fide. I'll say, like, where is that in the Bible? Uh, and you know, they, they might, they might not know, they might know, but I'll be like, can you read it to me, please? Right. <laughs> can right. you read to me what the Bible says about faith alone? Thanks. Yeah, exactly. And that's why Luther called James an epistle of straw. And for a time he sought to excise it from the new Testament. Canon. Right. Yeah, exactly. And as a former reformed seminarian, I can attest that the Protestant paradigm is one of applying an extra biblical like, exegetical framework to try and harmonize Luther's sola fide battle cry with passages like James 2.24. Um, and uh, yeah, furthermore, the problem is compounded by the fact that Protestants disagree not only with Luther, but with each other about Scripture's plain meaning on the very essentials of the Christian faith, including which persons truly possess Christ, as Mr. Kamel uh, talks about in his article, you know, this idea of possessing Christ. So, I mean, <laughs> Catholic apologists have been making this argument for a long time. So uh, my confirmation saint, St. Francis de Sales, who was a 16th and early 17th century Catholic bishop and evangelist, he noted in his own life, only a few generations removed from Luther and Calvin, that different contradictory Protestant movements were multiplying across Europe without any means of adjudicating between them. And uh, I would say without a centralized magisterial authority, which like that was one of the things most appealing to me about Catholicism, that multiplicity and confusion is the inevitable result. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And um, my wife, loves St. Francis de Sales and has a special devotion to him. And he spent a lot of time countering Jansenism. You probably know that. Um, but, but those, those ideas, uh, which were birthed in, or at least, you know, at least, uh, maybe not birthed in the Protestant Reformation, but at least sort of paralleled it. Right. Um, and sort of infected Catholicism, um, in many respects, those ideas were downright, downright bad, uh, and, and led a lot of people to fall away from the faith. Yeah, that's true. And, um, I've I've, got, I've gone to mass a lot overseas, and I can you can still see it when you go to mass. Um, with uh, I've been to mass with a lot of French people before, and a lot of French folks will not go up to receive communion. And I, this is just my um, uh, my premise, but I, I have a feeling a lot of that has to do with Jansenism because Jansenism taught that you had you had to have such a strong level of certitude regarding your own moral uprightness and purity in order to receive the host. Um, and that, that's not what the Catholic, I mean, the Catholic church teaches, as long as you have confidence that you have no mortal sin and you've gone to confession and had whatever mortal sin, uh, forgiven, then you have all, all right to go up and receive Christ in the host. Yeah. And I think that, that obviously Jansenism is, is obviously not, uh, the same thing as, uh, reformed theology or Sola Fide really it's sort of a, I guess, a counter reaction to it, um, in that, uh, and in that the idea of Jensen is, is is much more close to work salvation, right? It's about uh, you know what have what have I done to make my salvation secure? And um, I think it lends itself to spiritual perfectionism, right? And that's why uh, it's condemned as a heresy. But I think this conversation that we're having right now about Jansenism is instructive because a lot of Protestants from the outside looking in. Um, see Jansenism in the church. They compare it to sola fide, where all you have to do is have faith, and that is certitude, right? Um, and they say the Catholic position must be much closer to what we would call Jansenism. 
And so I think, uh, I, I don't know if Mr. Kamel falls prey to this. He doesn't really go into it in, in this article, uh, but I sure hope he doesn't because if he has an idea about the Catholic faith that we are somehow about works righteousness, that's just flat out wrong. Yeah, yeah, of course. Indeed, and um, yeah, there is an irony here, right? So when people talk about uh, individuals who seem egregiously focused on their own moral uprightness, they often throw around the world puritanical, right? And what? why do they use that word? It's because the Puritans, a Calvinist movement, um, who I benefited spiritually from quite a bit reading their writings when I was, uh, uh, when I was reformed, um, but the Puritans were looking for external signs to confirm that they were of the elect. Um, and this, this is a massive problem within Calvinism, right? How do you, you – know, we, we, as a Calvinist, I believe that I was one of the elect and I um, was saved and there was nothing I had to do in order to earn my salvation. But then the question is how can I be sure that I'm actually one of the elect? And uh, one of the Puritan answers is, well, you have to it, – it'll be visible by your works and by living a moral, morally righteous life. Well, then right. you become uh, obsessed with what – what uh, characterizes a moral upright life, right? And you end up in this sort of competition with yourself and others to try and be most holy. Yeah, and that, again, is the spiritual perfectionism problem all over again. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I think we're almost out of time. We can't go into this a whole lot, and this is moving away from the uh, the article by Mr. Kamel anyway, but Catholic soteriology synthesizes these ideas, um, maybe synthesizes the wrong word. It, it, I guess it rejects both of these ideas, right? It rejects the idea that it is, um, you know, that, that a man is justified by faith alone, as uh, James says, a man is not justified by faith alone. And it also rejects this idea that um, you, you somehow uh, need certitude arising from your works. Uh, rather, we have this idea that we're, we're justified by our acceptance of God's free, gratuitous gift of grace, because if it weren't free and gratuitous, then it wouldn't be grace by definition, and that um, we become uh, further justified in our cooperation with the will of God in doing good works. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think Protestants would also benefit from um, taking a look at the early church councils, which so explicitly condemned Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism at the Council of Orange. I want to say sixth century A.D. Um, because Catholic, I mean, Protestants often accuse Catholics of being either Pelagians or, or semi-Pelagians for like works righteousness, as Luther would call it. But both of those teachings are soundly condemned in the Catholic paradigm. Yeah, I think people don't people don't realize that, and I know people who were former Catholics, uh, are former Catholics. Um, you know, people in my family, uh, extended family, uh, who tell me about this works righteousness. And it's really sad that these ideas, uh, going back all the way to Jansenism, have pervaded so much of the Catholic consciousness, um, and we need to move away from that. But it's also important to realize that that is not what the Catholic Church teaches. So whether or not that's what someone learned in Sunday school or in Catholic school or from the homily uh, when they were growing up, you know, that's one issue. Whether or not it's what the Church teaches is another issue. Yeah, that's right. And I think that Catholic pol- apologists who too freely talk about um, they com- they compare Catholicism and Protestantism by saying Protestants say uh, the Christian is justified by faith alone through grace, and the Catholic says that uh, the the Christian is justified by um, grace through faith and works. I-, I think that's not a very helpful distinction. Agreed, I'd yeah. like to rather say that um, the Catholic Church teaches. Let's just use Saint Paul's language himself. He says we're justified by faith working itself out through love, right? Which is, that's what works 
are. Yeah, they exactly. Are our response to God in love. Yeah, that's well said, and I think it's a good point to end on. Casey, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. I'd love to have you on again sometime soon. Maybe we can dig into some of these Reformed ideas a little bit more because there's a lot there. As we said, Reformed theology uh, is very attractive to people who are um, trying to dig deep uh, intellectually in the Christian tradition. Um, but Catholicism has very good answers uh, to all of the objections that Reformed theology raises, and maybe we can talk about some of those on a future podcast. In the meantime, for our listeners, if you want to follow some more of Casey's work, just go go ahead and check out Casey Chalk. You can find his writing on Call to Communion, at The Catholic Thing, at Crisis Magazine, the New Oxford Review, all of the places that I mentioned. Um, Casey, any other places where they can follow your work or just keep up with what you're doing? Uh, the American Conservative is another one where I write uh, frequently as a contributor. Uh, people, people can also go to my website, CaseyChalk.com. Perfect. That sounds great. Well, CaseyChalk.com, go check it out. Casey, thank you so much for joining us, and God bless you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Creedal Catholic, and thank you to Casey for joining us for today's discussion. If you want to leave some feedback, email me, Zach, at CreedalCatholic.com. And as always, we would love a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what we can be doing better. And tell your friends about Credo Catholic, share it with them as we continue to try and grow this ministry and spread the good news of the gospel and the truth of the Catholic Church. All right, that's all for today. We'll be back next week for more content. God bless you.